thankful for Christ and the cross, aren't you? Amen. Never gets old. Uh, sometimes we, we get all wrapped up and uh, people try to say all kinds of other things, the way to, to Christ, and there's only one way, and it's by that hill called Mount Calvary. I've seen that, by the way. Several of you have. We went to Israel, went to Jerusalem, went to the place of the skull, Calvary, and uh, you can see the outline of his face, uh, the, the place of the skull there, and uh, it, it's amazing. I remember the very first time I went there, uh, golly, uh, I, I went and we had an Easter service-like uh, in the grounds there with the empty tomb right there. They allowed it then. They don't allow that anymore. And we sit right there and we were saying, and because he lives. And it's real interesting, uh, uh, the, uh, the Roman Catholics control a lot of the holy sites. And they have a holy site there that they say is where Christ died and so on. And we went in there, but it was like a dungeon. There was incense, and you just didn't feel good about being there for some reason. Then we went over to Calvary, the true Gordon's Calvary. Uh, we went there, and uh, I'll never forget it. It was like the Spirit of God was jumping all over that place. It, it was unbelievable. And uh, you'd sing, you'd sense God. It was wonderful. And uh, I look forward to one day being able to thank him for that. I don't know about you, but I sure am. And okay, the believer's life of grace. Very simple outline, the believer's life of grace. There's a starting point. That's when you put your faith in the finished work of Christ and that alone. He's the son of God. He died on the cross for our sins. Shed his blood. He died. He was buried. He rose again. The father accepted that as the final payment for sins once and for all time. And because of what he's accomplished, we believe that and that alone. It's not church membership, it's not baptism, it's not penance, it's not giving money, it's nothing else, just belief that who Christ is and what he's accomplished. Now that's the starting point of the grace life. And when you trust that gospel of grace there, your life begins. Truly, your life begins. And then it's day to day. It's, uh, we call it sanctification. Uh, it's, a, it's a time where you begin to grow and you try to become more of what the Word says you should be. And so uh, you're trying to put that as a part. You put off the old man, you're trying to put on that new man, aren't you? And uh, some people are more successful than other people. Uh, some people, they're babes in Christ. Uh, some people are carnal. They have one foot in the world, one foot in the church. And then there are other people who are spiritual. They're more mature. They get a hold of it. It's about their relationship with God, and they try to stay in that relationship in a daily way. That's the day-to-day, -day. until finally it progresses to our conclusion, the life of grace. And the conclusion is we go to heaven. And uh, sometimes you need to read uh, Keith Blade's book on heaven. And uh, he believes it's another planet like ours. Ours is a pattern of the truth. And uh, he, it's real interesting. 
But anyway, we'll be going up one day. So the first part of our salvation is grace salvation. Chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. I'm grateful that the grace has the ability to go worldwide now. The true grace. Now, it's apart from the previous dispensation. The previous dispensation when Christ was on earth did not preach the gospel that we preach today. He preached a gospel that was according to Israel. We preach a gospel that's according to the body of Christ. And there's a difference. For instance, Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Then he took unto him twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted on. And they shall scourge him and put him to death. The third day he shall rise again. And this is just shortly before he goes to the cross. And what happens? They understood none of these things. Now, if they understood none of those things, how could they be preaching a gospel that we know today? How is that possible? That's an impossibility. They didn't understand it. It states this in John chapter 20, verse 8. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. Now get this. This is after the resurrection. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. If they didn't even know he was rising from the dead, how could they be preaching a gospel that says Christ died for us, he was buried, he rose again, and that's sufficient to save you. That is a different gospel. The true gospel that's for today was revealed to the apostle Paul. He states in Romans chapter 16, verse 25, Now to him that is power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began. Paul's saying, listen, I want you to know that the gospel, the pure grace gospel that I'm preaching to you today, that saves you today, it was kept secret. It was not part of Israel's program. It's a new message that you're freely forgiven by just belief in the finished work of Christ. He said, here's what that gospel is, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also ye are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. You, don't, you haven't believed in the gospel, in the resurrection. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also re received, I believe it, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then it goes on, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And so today, anything outside of Paul's gospel cannot save you. Did you hear that? Nothing outside of the Apostle Paul's gospel can save you today. Only Paul's gospel can do that.
Thank God for this message. God has poured out his grace. He has shown it to everybody. Christ has finished work. Ephesians 1, 7 says this here. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Romans 3, 24 says, being justified freely, how? By his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So he has brought this gospel message. God removed the middle wall, the partition that was between the Jews and the Gentiles. And he flattened that out to whereas today all people are favored with the opportunity to be able to be saved. Amen? It wasn't that way until Paul came on the scene. States in 2 Corinthians 4, 3, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine unto them. I'm grateful that that gospel shined into my heart one day, aren't you? I remember my life was a wreck. I was so empty, had no answers, going the wrong direction. And that gospel light penetrated my stupid mind and my heart, and it revealed there was an answer for me. And the answer was Jesus Christ and his finished work. That is the answer. I had an encounter with God then. God moved on my heart revealed that, and I believed I was birthed right in the pew sitting there because I believed it with all my heart. 2 Timothy 1.10 says this here, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our, our Savior Jesus Christ who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Boy, do we have a message today. We have a message that can transform people from darkness to light, from going to hell to going to heaven. 1 Timothy 2.4 says this here, who will have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth. It's God's desire that you might be saved today. And the old saying is, it's level at the foot of the cross, isn't it? That's grace of salvation. But then there's Grace's teachings. Titus 2.12 says this here. Teaching us, his grace, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. You see, grace not only saves us, but it continues to educate us. His grace matures us, instructs us, disciplines us to live a certain godly lifestyle. And regardless of what you're hearing people say today, it is never a license to sin. God forbid, as he says in his word. Grace sets up a classroom in our heart and it becomes our teacher. Do you remember after you were first saved, that when you start to do a sin that you used to do and all of a sudden you have a conflict, it's like an alarm goes off and lights begin to shine. Anybody ever feel that way? Boy, I know that I did. 
Why is that? Because God's grace had already begun to teach us God's ways. He set up resonance in us. Grace teaches us within us through the word of God, through the spirit, to live like Christ. Now as a believer, inside of us, we have a new spirit. We, we are partakers, in a sense, of the divine nature, right? And we're new people now. And because we're new inside, when we act contrary to that new spirit that's been birthed, regenerated inside of us, that's when those lights go off and let us know that something is wrong. Before I was saved and these awful things would come to my mind, I was all in. But after I got saved, I go, uh-oh, <laughs> something's not right. Huh? I might have wanted to, but I know I shouldn't. Amen? 2 Corinthians 4.10 says this, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. We are to try to live Christ-like. Romans 6.13 says this, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. God says, listen, you're different now. And I expect you to live different now. Not the way you used to when you were just a sinner. Now you're a child of God. And you need to live that way. And it's a choice. And I want you to make the godly choice. He says in chapter 2, verse 12 of Titus, it states there toward the last, it states worldly lust. You see that? Those are the attractions that the world offers to try to fulfill, they say, that emptiness that is inside of us. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and these are counterfeits. They're substitutes. Uh, they are attractions that the devil, the flesh, and the world uses to try to draw us away from our relationship with God. And it got a hold of David, didn't it? It got a hold of Demas. And the sad truth is, it's got a hold of too many believers. It's drawn them away from that proper relationship with God. And as that verse shows us that when God saves us from something negative, he also saves us to something that is positive. He says in that verse, to live soberly, righteously and godly. And when that begins to take place in your walk, in your life, that's when you begin to have victory. That's when you begin to have some conquering going on in your life from the old ways to the new ways. And then notice, there's grace's hope. Verse 13, Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It has the idea of expecting at any time Jesus to return. You see, the answer for us living in this present world is a look for the coming of Jesus to take us out of this world. 
Amen? That's our hope. And as we see America and the world crumbling, going down, ready to blow apart, surely it must be close to Jesus coming for us. Amen? When we look and acknowledge his soon coming, we know this. He has an eternal plan all ready for us to live in eternity. He has a purpose for us beyond what we're living today. <laughs> That's why Paul says in Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall ye appear with him in glory. Colossians 1, 27, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The what? The hope. That's grace's hope. The hope of glory. First Thessalonians 1.10, and to wait for his son from heaven. That's who we're waiting for. And one day soon our faith will become sight. One day soon, I believe with all my heart, we will be caught up and see him face to face in eternity. That's going to be a great day that day. And then we begin to fulfill his eternal purpose for us. We in heavenly places. And it might be the fact that we might even instruct some angelic creations. We might even have part in some of the responsibilities in the universe out there one day. It states in Ephesians 2, 6, and 7, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together, where? In heavenly places. There are places in heaven that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches, riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, 3, the first part of that verse, Now ye not, know ye not, that we shall judge angels. Now think that through. That's why I said a while ago, we might be giving instructions to angelic beings one of this day, and even the universe. And by the way, Grace's Hope, that verse 13 again, it says there, I think it's important, the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That and there's a conjunction, and it connects this God is our Savior, who is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. Amen? Now notice what I've said. Grace is salvation, grace is teachings, grace is hope, and grace is works. Now this is an important part. 2.14 says this here. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all sin and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Took us out of Adam and placed us in Christ. He's changed who we are. We are new creatures. He now owns us. And as a result of that, we are to show the lost we are God's special people by the way we live, we practice, and the things that we do. As the word of God works in us, the spirit of God's taking that word in us. Ephesians 4.1 says this, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you 
that ye walk worthy of the vocation of being a child of God wherewith ye are called. In other words, it's our responsibility to bring our practice up to our position of being a child of God. There's no such thing as going out in the world, you're saved, you're going to heaven. God says, I don't want you to do that. Ephesians 2.10 says this here. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, salvation, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God says, I've ordained that you practice godly living. I've given you before what Dr. Charles Baker said. He said this, if a person claims to be an artist, yet he never paints. If a person claims to be a musician, but he never plays, he never plays, we have reason to doubt that they're not what they're saying. And if a person claims to be a new creation in Christ to do good works that glorify God, but they never do them, we have reason to doubt they've ever had an encounter with God. Now, a lot of grace preachers won't preach that because they, they are just so full of grace, which I understand, but grace works in us to live for God. We often say, well, we're saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ, but grace and faith are not works. Grace and faith are not works. But Unger said, saving faith can never be divorced from works which show faith and grace exist. If faith and grace exist in you, it should demonstrate it by the way we live our lives. Blair said, we're not saved by works, but if true faith, it is followed by some godly works, Ironside said, no action, no faith. There is no work of grace in the heart where there is no acts of grace in the life. It's true, when you get saved, you have a desire, a supernatural desire that's placed inside of you. You want to please God. You want to do something for God. That's an automatic thing that happens. Dr. Wiersbe said this, a dead faith is when a person is touched with his intellect and perhaps his emotions only. The demons believe intellect and tremble emotions, but true faith is you receive the life then and you reveal that life through the whole person, our mind, our emotions, our heart, and our will. Dr. Packer said, the proof that man's faith is real is precisely that it makes him do godly things. It makes him feel the constraint of Christ's love for him, the greatness of the debt of gratitude he owes to God for the salvation he receives. I remember after I was first saved, I didn't know anything about anything. I wasn't brought up in a home where we studied the Bible or, or things like that. I mean, I was green as green could be. And boy, I, I'd mess up. I'd sin. 
Boy, I'd be back on my, my knees. And one of the things that drove me there, I couldn't believe that God could love somebody like me. That was the hardest thing for me, to finally to learn that and move on. And it happens in our life, doesn't it? Dr. Metcham says, a Christian is not saved by himself, but by God. But he is saved by God, not in order that he may continue in sin, but in order that he may conquer sin and attain unto holiness. Amen? Now these quotes are good. You might not like them, but they're good. Swindoll said, God is committed to the task of conforming the believer to the image of his son. What God starts, he continues until he finishes. I mean, God's there working in you to try to get you to put off and put on. Philippians 1.6 says this here, that the communication of thy faith, and that's not the one that I want, he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And then Romans 8.30, fellas, did I give you that? Forgive me, I gave you the wrong verse. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, you've been saved, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. So God says to us, I want you to know, when I saved you, I'm in this for the long haul. You can't get rid of me. I've come and I'm inside of you. And from the start to the time I glorify you one day, I'm going to be there trying to work in your life. That's what you need. That's what I need. Amen? And when we believe in the gospel of grace, it's then that our being, our character is transformed. It changes it changes the motivation of our life, the, the direction of our lives. Salvation is revolutional. When you have an encounter with God, it works in us. And if he's not there working in you, you need to step back and say, am I saved? Romans six seventeen. But God be thanked that Ye were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. God says, I've done such a work in you, do you realize it? You're dead to sin but alive unto God and the things of God, if you just recognize that. If you're saved, you've been reconciled, made nigh, a child of God, a saint, accepted, made alive, quickened, regenerated, indwelt, sealed, God working in you, given grace, given righteousness, seated in Christ, in his body, redeemed. Don't you think those things would create a little work every now and then in you for God? Ought to be there somewhere. If a baby's been born, it'll cry, it'll breathe, it'll do something, it'll probably go to the bathroom, but it will prove that it is birthed. 
And in my life, there needs to be some evidence. I've been birthed. I'm not saved by works. But because of this transformation that's taken place called salvation, it ought to birth some things in my life that's toward God. I'm a new person. I have a new position. And all this helps produce in me new practices. That's what I'm saying. And the last thing, Titus 2.15. These things speak and exhort and rebuke. Rebuke them if they're not living for me. With all authority you have, let no man despise thee. There we see grace's battle in 2.15. Paul calls on believers in grace to stand up for grace's truth. You and I should know the gospel of grace so well that no matter what arguments are thrown at us, we can fend off those arguments. Amen? When you're attached to the grace message, you will always be satanically attacked. He's against the gospel of grace, that grace God uses to work in our lives. Satan hates the gospel of grace, so he attacks. It seems as if he has a sworn vengeance to obscure, to obliterate the knowledge of the mystery gospel of grace doctrine from believers' minds. And he's been tremendous at creating the confusion within Protestants and churches, creating traditions and denominations and this and that to res- so that they can resist and reject Bible truth. You talk to somebody about truth today. It's an amazing thing. They'll use everything and they will not even consider the truth. You say, but it says here in the Bible, what has happened to Christianity that Christians are afraid to look at the Bible? Have you noticed that? They're afraid to look at the Bible because it might change the way they're supposed to think. (laughs) I've tried to figure that out. And if there's a church that rightly divides, just get ready, Satan attacks. We know that from experience. So it's not always easy to live out grace. It's not always easy to put off and put on. It's not always easy to die to self and live for Christ. I understand that. We live in a world and we're part of that world. And it's not always easy. Often in our life, there is pain and heartache and misery and trouble and hurt and loneliness and trials. And even when we know the truth, even when we try to live the truth, a a number of people's response to us is unkind and evil in its return at times. I used in my Sunday school class this morning, greatest Christian who's ever lived, who was it? I don't think there's any question. It was Paul. He's the author of Christianity in a sense. It was was revealed to him. 
the truth of the gospel of grace. He wrote 13 epistles. He wrote more epistles than anybody else. But even Paul, after he started all those churches, 2 Timothy 1.15, that just breaks my heart, this thou knowest that all they which are in Asia, Asia Minor, be turned away from me. And I think of all the people that he touched, all those people who were supposed to be believers, when Paul needed them the most at the end of his ministry, they were gone. He said, at my first defense, no man stood with me. Nevertheless, the Lord stood with me. Grateful for that, but where were the people? The people he touched, the people he taught, the people he healed. Where were all those people? And I think sometimes Christ says to us, where are you? I touched you one day. I did something miraculous in your life one day. I saved you. In your walk, you've been up and down, but every time when you turn back, I was there. Where are you now? In your relationship with me, he says. Second Timothy, or, uh, Timothy, again, chapter 4, verse 14. For I reckon that, well, that's a good one. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. Verse 15, did I give you that? Of whom be thou aware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. You will always have that opposition, won't you? I mean, it always be out there. But you know something? We have to stop being wimps and get a little grit. You know, in this country, we always are amazed when we see the photos of World War II and how passively the Jews marched to the furnaces. We say, what in the world's wrong with that? But I see today in America, and America's crumbling in so many areas, and socialism is coming in, and we're just walking passively toward the furnaces like we're nothing. We need to, well, I want to say raise up and quit you like men, the Bible says. Be strong in the Lord and the word of his power. Today, men don't even know if they're men today. Isn't that true? And then you're expecting to stand on what? It's crazy what's going on. And if there's ever a time that we need some people who know who they are in Christ, who are willing to get some grit and stand up for the truth, that's what God wants from us. Romans 8.18 says this here, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. This is a temporal setting that we have there. I know we have to work. We have to provide for our families. We love our spouses. Well, some of you do. And we love, we love our kids. We, we love these. I understand you have to participate in life, and it's a real drag on you sometimes. I understand all of that. But somewhere along the line, I need to do something for God. Somewhere in my life, there needs to be an evidence 
a picture showing people Christ has redeemed me. Christ has transformed me. If I am anything, I am by the grace of God. Amen? And so I just challenge you, listen, time is short. People need to see people that do stand up for what they believe and the truth. And I hope it's people that come from Grace Point. Amen? And not just yield to the fantasies of this world and this culture. Because all those things are going to pass away and only what's done for Christ will last, as the old saying goes. Father, we love you. I just pray you be with our people. I love them. I wish for them nothing better than your grace working in their life. And Lord, while you're calling on others, please don't forget me. Don't pass me by. God, I need a touch of you to refresh in me, to encourage me once again. This is a battle. It's a war. And God, I want to be a part of the victory. So bless the people. May something said today tug at their hearts that they will say it's God all the way for me. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? We hope that you received a blessing from today's broadcast. We would love to have you to visit us in person. You can watch us live and view past services on our website at gpnd.net. For more information, please visit our website or contact us by phone. Until next week, may God richly bless you as our prayer.